It's a delight to be back here with you. Been out of this pulpit now for a month. It's always dangerous to be gone that long. You face one of two possibilities. One is they forget about you. Well, the other is they figure out they don't need you. I'm not sure which is worse. So I'm glad to be back here before you either forget or come to the conclusion you don't need me anymore. It is a delight to be here, but I am really appreciative of Pastor Vince and the great job he did preaching in my absence. He's not here this morning. He's sick and called me early this morning and started croaking in the phone and I said, don't come in and get near me with that thing. You you stay home and get better. So he's, he's home and, you know, that's probably good because I want to talk about him and I don't want to do it with him here. I was here last Sunday morning, as you know, and sitting there listening to him preach and the Lord was just ministering to my heart with that sermon and and on the way home, Carol and I were talking in the car, and, and we were just talking about what a good job he did. And we got talking to each other, and he said, Can you believe this? Some of you have been here a long time, you'll know this. Others of you who are more recent, you wouldn't know. But, but about 13 years ago, thereabouts, Vince and Gabrielle Nakotra first started attending here, and I was teaching a small adult Sunday school class at that time, and they joined the class. And after a few weeks, he came to me after class, and he said, Would you disciple me? Would you teach me the Bible? And that just doesn't happen very often, to be honest. People don't just come and ask for that kind of thing. And when they do, I usually set the barrier so high that I figure I'll weed out those that aren't serious. And I said, Sure. 5.30 in the morning, Tuesday morning at your house. Have something for me to eat. (laughs) So on Tuesday mornings at 5.30, I would arrive at his house and we'd have Pop-Tarts or something. But (laughs) we started working through the scriptures together and it was just amazing. I mean, he didn't know very much about the Bible at all. And in fact, he, he struggled with some different issues in his life. But he was faithful, and and little by little, as he applied himself to the Word of God, it began to transform his heart in some amazing ways. To the place where we began to talk and pray about the possibility of seminary someday and some of those kinds of things, it, it just seemed so impossible, so remote. Here was a guy who had never graduated from college or any of those things, and he was just working away, a faithful man. He got involved in children's ministries. He was teaching in the fifth and sixth grade Sunday school, and he did that faithfully. And, and then he moved on into the high school ministry, and he was teaching there. And, and uh, I'll say this because he's not here, and he can listen on tape if he wants to. Uh, when he first started teaching, he was awful. <laughs> and that's just the flat truth of it. And uh, he, he, he wouldn't mind me saying that. He would acknowledge such things. I can remember my kids coming home and saying, Dad, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> and I said, well, you just pray for him. You, be, you pray for him, you be faithful, and you be patient with him, and you encourage him. And he 
continued to persevere and the Lord continued to work in his life and his ability to communicate the scriptures just grew and and eventually he was asked to join the elder board and and he did and the Lord is continuing to work and and ultimately he, he was able to to leave his job we asked him to join the staff and then the church paid for him to go to seminary and and he graduated, as you know, just this last spring. And, and in the last 13 years, I'm not kidding you, there has been such a transformation in that man's life. And it's not Vince. It's not about Vince. And he would tell you that. It's, it's about God. It's about what God can do in the life of someone who will give themselves to him. And I tell you all this to encourage you. That's why I'm telling you. To encourage all of you. To encourage me. That there is no limit to what God can and will do to a faithful servant who will just give themselves to the Lord. We're returning this morning to our summer series. I'm well aware it's September now. (laughs) I had all the best intentions, believe me. I was looking back of the 13 weeks of the summer, seven of them I was unable to preach here in this summer series for various reasons. So I feel very justified in at least seven more weeks into the fall. So I don't know if that's going to be where it ends up, but, but at least we're going to be going a little bit longer. So we're back to our summer-fall series <laughs> called Things to Come. Things to Come. And just by way of reminder, because it has been a, it's been a month since we've been here talking about this. So just by way of reminder, how do we how do we get started on this? How did this series, Things to Come, come about? In fact, some of you have come here recently since we began the summer series, and so you probably don't realize that we're actually preaching through the Book of Romans. We're we're in a we're in a multi year series in Romans. This is merely a detour. And like Vincent said in his sermon title, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> I'm having trouble getting my way back to Romans. <laughs> but this series called Things to Come originated out of our study in Romans chapter 11. And in particular, our desire to understand more fully Paul's statement in Romans 11 verses 25 and 26. So let me just read it to you to remind you of why we launched this detour. Paul says, therefore, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. All Israel will be saved, Paul says. Now, when he makes that statement that all Israel will be saved, he is not saying that all Jews, every single individual Jew that has ever lived, will be saved. That is not what he is saying at all. 
What he is saying here is that when God has finished his special work among the Gentiles, called here the fullness of the Gentiles, when that moment has arrived, when, when the last and final Gentile of this church age has been saved and brought into the family of God, at that point in time, God will be done with working directly among the Gentiles and he will return back to his chosen people, Israel. He will turn his full attention to them and to their salvation. And as a result of him bringing his full and undivided attention, if I can say it that way, upon the nation of Israel, the result will be a massive revival among the Jewish people. A massive revival that will come as a result of God's fierce wrath poured out upon them and the bold preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those combination of those two factors, the fierce wrath of God, the bold preaching of the gospel, those two events will coincide and bring about this massive revival at the end of the age. And it is in that context, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now, there is some historic background behind all of this, and I'm still just reminding you of things that you already know. The background that lies behind this great revival was actually laid on Tuesday of the Passion Week. After Christ had come in on Palm Sunday to the adoration, might I say the false adoration of the Jewish crowds, he began a final confrontation with the nation there in Jerusalem, the capital city. And on Tuesday afternoon, he specifically confronted their false and superficial adoration of the crowds, and he did it by attacking the very foundation of their external and hypocritical religious system, a system that was embodied in a group of men known as the Pharisees, the Pharisees. And so in Matthew chapter 23, we have all of those woe statements, woe unto you, Pharisees, hypocrites, and he calls them out. He calls them out. And in the process of doing that, he actually is confronting the nation as a whole. They were considered the epitome of holiness. They were the ones people aspired to be like. And Jesus rips them apart. And in the process of doing that, he reveals to the nation as a whole that all that they place their trust in is superficial, it is external, it is hypocritical, it is works-based, and it will not save you. In fact, it will bring you into eternal condemnation. Matthew records his words here in Matthew 23, verses 37 and following. And there Jesus writes, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you that from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus came out from the temple. Jesus left the temple, and in the process, he symbolically walked away from the nation. And he said, you will never see me again. That is, you will not have opportunity to recognize me as Messiah, as your king, again, until you are ready to say, blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Beloved, it has been almost 2,000 years. It has been almost 2,000 years and still Israel remains hardened and resistant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the prophet Zechariah recorded these words. He said that there is a day coming. There is a day coming when God will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. It is in that day when the nation looks upon their king, their Messiah, and they recognize him for whom he really is, that it is at that point in time that they will take upon their lips the words of the prophet Isaiah recorded in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. And he said, for them surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. When the nation finally makes that statement, expresses that conviction, comes under that reality, and it crashes home on them. And it's at that moment that Paul says all Israel will be saved. And in fact, beloved, what will happen at that time is that the nation will then take on their lips the words of Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. This is the great and glorious day of the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of David in the capital city of Jerusalem. But we're not there. We're not there. That day is still yet future. How long future, we do not know. But that day is still future. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible, page 898... I've included for you in your bulletin essentially a copy of my notes. 
I do that for you so that you don't have to try to scratch down every single scripture reference, but you can listen and follow along because I want you to gather the big picture here. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures together this morning. Mostly I'm just going to read them to you and make minimal comments because I want to pull together this big picture for you. But it begins here in Daniel chapter 12. Let me begin the reading here in verse 1. Now at that time, Michael... The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Daniel chapter 12 is a continuation of the vision given to Daniel recorded over in chapter 11. The end of chapter 11, in fact, a good bit of chapter 11 deals with the Antichrist, that final coming world ruler who will ruthlessly and mercilessly persecute the nation of Israel. These events are at the end of time. It's clear from the context here in chapter 12. That's what we're talking about. Resurrection is mentioned here several times. It says the end of time. We are speaking of the end of the age. The end of the age. And there are two two ideas I want to lift out of this for you and have you just hang on to and we'll develop them together here. One is in verse 1 where he says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. A time of distress is coming up. A time of distress upon the people of Israel that is unlike anything they have ever experienced. And we are looking forward prophetically to the very end of the age. And thus, beloved, we are talking about a time to come upon the nation of Israel that is unlike anything they have ever experienced to this point in time or will experience in the future until that day comes. And Daniel says, how long? How long will this persecution last? Verse 7, we're told for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years, 1,260 days. I'm not going to develop it for you. You can work that out on your own or check an earlier sermon. But here's the thing I want you to see. It will end as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people. Do you see it? Shattering the power of the holy people. It is in this statement, the shattering of the nation of Israel, 
The shattering of their pride, the shattering of their power, the shattering of their self-sufficiency at that point in time when the nation has been shattered. The end will come. And it's in this statement, the shattering of the people, that we find the second reason for the tribulation. Now, a month ago, we went over the first reason. I told you there were two fundamental reasons that explain the horror of this tribulation period, this period of seven years of hell on earth. The first of those, as I said, I believe it was August 26th. If you didn't listen and weren't able to be here, you can get it online. Listen to that. The first was to recover the earth. That is that Satan and his rule upon this planet and those that find themselves in league with him, he must be evicted. Our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, progressively breaking one seal after another, opens the title deed to the earth, Revelation chapter 6, and through the opening of the seal and the, or the opening of the scroll and the breaking of the seal and the repetitive and intensifying judgments that fall, he evicts Satan from this planet and assumes its rightful control. That was the first reason. The second is found here, to shatter his people. To shatter his people. To shatter the pride of Israel. So that at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the nation will finally turn to him and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's at that time that he will both spiritually and physically rescue and deliver his people. How does God bring this about? How will God bring about this massive change of heart among the Jewish people? How will he overturn the accumulated hostility and hardness of heart that has been building up for millennia? He does it through what the prophets call the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And so what I want to do with you this morning is explore the day of the Lord. This is a heavy topic. This is a heavy topic, but it's a necessary topic. As you read your Old Testament, you're going to come across this concept over and over again. And so what I hope to do here is at least just give you a framework to begin to slot those prophecies into to make, to make sense out of these many statements. So let's begin together. The day of the Lord, what is it? What is it? The expression, the day of the Lord, occurs over 20 times in the Bible, both Old Testament and New. As well as the frequent and synonymous expressions, that day or that time. You will see these. That day, that time. When you see those, it is a reference to, almost almost without exception, to the day of the Lord. In its very simplest terms, the day of the Lord is an expression that refers to God's special and unmistakable intervention into human history. It is God inserting himself into human history in a way that is absolutely unmistakable. People know that it is God who is doing this. Normally, God works through providence. This is a special insertion of God into human history. And he does it 
for two purposes. One, to judge his enemies, and second, to deliver his people. The judging of his enemies and the deliverance of his people. And in the process of doing that, he demonstrates his sovereign control over all the universe. The day of the Lord. This expression most often refers to the, to the end of the age. Speaking of the end of the age and the establishment of the Messiah's future kingdom. I'm going to take you backwards, or excuse me, to the right to uh, Joel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Okay, here we go. Joel chapter 2. Page 911, if you're using a pew Bible. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 30. The prophet says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. Just drop down to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and its strangers will pass through it no more. And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The day of the Lord. A time of judgment upon his enemies. 
a time of rescue for His people. Now, as we go through the various biblical prophecies with regard to the day of the Lord, what I want to do is is give you a couple of keys to keep in mind as you interpret these on your own. We don't have time to go through every single one of them. You're going to be going through them on your own as you're reading through the Scriptures both now and in the weeks, months, and years to come. You're going to over and over again encounter this concept. So let me give you two keys. That would be four. Two keys. Two keys that help unlock these prophecies. The first one. The first one is that following the pattern that God established in Genesis 1, when He called the earth into existence, a Jewish day begins at sunset and extends to the next sunset. The biblical text in Genesis says there was evening and there was morning one day. Now, that's different for you, for us who have been raised in a Western culture. When I talk about a day, you think of a day beginning when? In the morning with the rising of the sun. Is that right? For, for in the Jewish calendar, it's just the opposite. It starts with the setting of the sun and runs 24 hours from that. So, for the Jew, the order of events of a typical day is darkness followed by light. Darkness followed by light. The darkness grows progressively darker, does it not? It's a phenomenon we've all observed. It grows progressively darker and indeed grows darkest right before the dawn. And then the light progressively breaks through until it's seen in all its glory and splendor. The day of the Lord in in the prophecies follow that pattern, darkness and then light. You saw that right here in Joel as I read it to you. It was the darkness of judgment. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the prophet says in Revelation. That is the darkness time, but then it's followed with the coming of the light where he says in verse 18 of Joel chapter 3, it'll come about in that day the mountains will will drip sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk and so forth. Darkness followed by light. It's the first key you need to keep in mind. Secondly, the prophets often use the image of a woman in labor to speak of the day of the Lord. They often use the image of a woman in labor. A woman experiences labor prior to the delivery of a child. It begins with labor pains that are infrequent in occurrence and relatively mild in terms of their discomfort. And they grow in their regularity and their intensity until they fall like hammer blows one on top of the other, each one stronger and more painful until she comes to the point of death almost, giving birth to new life. And at that point, there is great joy as a new life comes into the world. The prophets have picked up on that. And so they use that as a, as a way to understand this coming day of the Lord. That is, that it, it will come slowly, almost imperceptibly, as the pains are infrequent and not all that intense, but, but they will begin to grow in their intensity and in their frequency until they become closer and closer and closer together. And then they fall, boom, 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 until the final 
coming forth of Messiah himself. So hanging on to these two keys, darkness and then light, and the natural phenomenon of labor leading to birth gives us a framework to understand the prophecies regarding the day of the Lord. That is, the day of the Lord will grow progressively darker. The day of the Lord will grow progressively more painful until it reaches its absolutely darkest hour. And it's at that moment through a series of rapid and terrifying judgments that the hour comes to its end in the joyful revelation of Messiah as he returns to earth to establish his kingdom. I'm not going to turn you there, but in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 through 11, I think it's in your notes. There the prophet speaks of the joyful birth, as it were, the return of Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. So if you can keep these two keys in mind, it will go a long way to making sense of the prophecies regarding the day of the Lord. What is it? It's a time of God's special intervention into human history in judgment and salvation. What is it like? <coughs> what is it like? The dominant theme of the day of the Lord is terrifying worldwide judgment. It is a time of terrifying worldwide judgment. I've given you the prophet Zephaniah, verse 1 and Beginning in verse 14, he says, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord in it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. The book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 16, records these terrifying judgments. It begins with a series of seals that are progressively broken as the scroll is unrolled, seven of them. Each one growing in intensity from the one before until it reaches the seventh seal. And when the seventh seal is broken, there is silence in heaven. And when the silence ends, seven trumpets begin to sound. Each trumpet unveiling more and more wrath and judgment. And when the seventh trumpet is reached, seven bowls are begun to be poured out. Each bowl falling faster and faster and harder and harder upon the earth until the seventh bowl is poured out. And at that time, the armies of the world gather there in Israel for the final confrontation. It is a series of terrifying judgments across this planet from which few are able to escape. But also as part of this terrifying time, there is the judgment on the nation of Israel, the judgment upon the Jewish 
people. God will allow the cruel and merciless persecution of the nation of Israel by the Antichrist when he turns on them at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Many, many people use the expression day of the Lord and tribulation interchangeably. But they are not exactly identical terms. The day of the Lord is darkness followed by what? Light. The tribulation is nothing but darkness. So in a strictest sense, the tribulation is the judgment time of the day of the Lord. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, page 986, if you're following along in a pew Bible. Matthew 24 and verse 15 it speaks of this terrible time of judgment at the beginning, at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's referring back to Daniel and his prophecy that Antichrist in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that at the midpoint of his 70th week, that final seven-year period, he will break his covenant of peace with Israel and he will turn on the nation. Establishing himself as God in the temple at that point, the prophet calling it the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when you see that happening, then let those who are in Judea, verse 16, flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are out in his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred until, since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Remember Daniel 12 and verse 1. He said it will be a time of, des- of, of distress unlike anything else in the history of the nation. Jesus and Daniel are talking about this same time. Times, time, and a half a time. Three and a half years. Verse 22, And unless those days had been cut short... No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut for or cut short. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 30, verses 5 through 7, speaks of this time this way. He says, For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a man can give birth. Well, then why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. It is that time, the last seven and a half years of the judgment time of the day of the Lord, when the wrath will fall upon the nation directed through Antichrist until it progressively grows so oppressive on them they have no place to turn but the Messiah himself. Beloved, Antichrist persecution will exceed anything this world has ever known. In the Holocaust of World War II, approximately one-third of the Jewish people were exterminated. Six million Jewish people slaughtered. 
sent to the ovens. In this final satanically inspired attempt to wipe out the people of God, the prophet Zechariah tells us that only one third of the nation will survive. Only one third will survive. What is it like? It is judgment. It is horror. It is distress. Unlike anything we have ever known. When will it come? When will it come? There is considerable difference of opinion among Bible commentators to answer this question. There is no one uniform answer here. Based on Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians, though, I would like to suggest to you a sequence of events. As I've worked it out in my own mind, at least at this point in time, and I always reserve the ability to amend but at this point in time, this is how I understand it. So let me share that with you. It begins with the rapture of the church, which brings about the fullness of the Gentiles. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, Christ himself will descend with a shout, with a trump, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall be, shall be raised first. And then we who are alive and remain shall join them in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's Paul's promise to us. He's talking about the rapture of the church. He's, he's talking about the catching away of all in Christ believers at that time. That will bring about what Paul calls in Romans 11.25, the fullness of the Gentiles. Following that, and this is where I have some questions in my mind, whether there is a, a break and a period of time or whether it's immediately following that. But following that, the day of the Lord itself is initiated. First Thessalonians chapter 5, page 1183, if you're using your pew Bibles, Paul writes as follows. He says, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Paul says the initiation of the day of the Lord will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It will be like a thief in the night. That is, you never know when it's going to come. Beyond that, it is inescapable. It is like a woman pregnant with child. The labor pains are going to come. It is inescapable. It is sudden, it is unexpected, it is inescapable. While the world is saying, verse 3, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. When will the world be saying peace and safety? What would these first century Christians have understood that to mean? Knowing that they had no New Testament at the time this was written, their only Bible was the Old Testament. 
they would gain their understanding from the Old Testament as it was preached to them and explained to them. What passage in the Old Testament jumps out in terms of a prophetic timetable that Paul would have instructed these early Christians in order to be looking and understanding these end-time events? It seems to me he would take them to the book of Daniel. It seems to me he would take them to the book of Daniel. And it seems to me he would take them to Daniel chapter 9 and in verse 27. Let me read that for you again just to refresh it in your mind. If you're able to turn there quickly and follow along, go for it. If you're not sure, just listen. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And he, that is Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, the prophet says. Beloved, the flashpoint of world problems lies in Israel. All the nations of the world have their eyes on Israel. The prophet Ezekiel calls it, speaking of Jerusalem, the the navel of the world. It is the center point. It is that place that all nations have their focus and attention because whoever could solve the problem in Israel will be able to unlock world peace. It's not going to be solved by some local politician. The only one who is going to be able to solve this problem is the satanically inspired Antichrist. He will come forward and he will sign a covenant of peace that is a a treaty with the nation of Israel by which he will ensure their protection. Prophet Daniel tells us that he will, re- he will rise out of the revived Roman Empire. Leads me to believe he comes from Europe. Some European leader somehow will be able to sign an agreement by which the Jews and the Arabs will live at peace one with another. And he will do so by ensuring Israel's security. The covenant of peace. I believe that is the event. That is the event that marks the beginning of the day of the Lord. And then at the midpoint, after three and a half years, he will turn on the nation with whom he has signed this covenant of peace and he will begin the violent persecution of them. A persecution that, according to Jesus, marks the beginning of the Great Tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. I find further support for this interpretation over in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So turn over there, page 1185, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and to our gathering together to him, 
that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for, and there's an ellipsis here, it has not come more literally unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul says, when I was with you, I was telling you about the Antichrist who would in the middle of Daniel's 70th week break his covenant with the nation and set himself up in the temple, proclaim himself to be God and call upon the world to worship him. Don't you remember I was telling you these things? That says to me that for sure. Paul's prophetic teaching to the early believers in Thessalonica must have come from the book of Daniel. It must have come there. Now, what's going on here in this chapter? We don't have time to develop it all, but but they have become disquieted in their spirit. They are being persecuted significantly here, this church at Thessalonica. And evidently, someone has come along and and has told them, the reason you're being persecuted is because you're in the day of the Lord. And so they see the intense persecution that they're presently being afflicted with. They understand that the day of the Lord is characterized by persecution. And their conclusion is that somehow we're in the day of the Lord. We missed the rapture. Paul says... No, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. You're not in the day of the Lord. You're not in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has not come because two things haven't happened first. The apostasy has not come. Do you see it? The day of the Lord is not here unless the apostasy comes actually first. I said two things first, only one first and then the other. The apostasy has not come first. The falling away has not come first. Followed by the revealing of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, Antichrist himself. You cannot be in the day of the Lord. You cannot be in the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is characterized by darkness. It is characterized by apostasy. It is further characterized by the man of sin being revealed. What is this apostasy? What is this falling away? Conventional interpretation is that it is a great apostasy that occurs within the Christian church. That is that those that profess faith in Jesus Christ begin to fall away in droves at the very end of the age. And that may very well be true. Paul speaks in in 1 Timothy about falling away. But I don't think that's the apostasy he's talking about here. I don't think that's the apostasy he's talking about here. I think the apostasy he's talking about relates to the nation of Israel. It relates to the nation of Israel. It is Israel turning from her God for protection to a false Messiah. 
one who will assure her protection by signing a covenant of peace. It's an apostasy not unlike Israel turning back to Egypt in the face of the Babylonian captivity. As the armies of Babylon closed in on the nation of Israel, rather than turn to her God for her protection, instead she sought to turn to Egypt. In the same way, the nation of Israel, surrounded by Arab nations, sworn to her destruction. Rather than turn to her God for her deliverance, she turns to a political figure to save her. She signs a covenant with a man of sin. This, I believe, is the apostasy Paul's referring to. This is an event that could be known worldwide. How would a little church in Thessalonica ever know about a a falling away from the Christian faith that occurs all over the world? How would they know about such things? This they could know about. This they could know about. I believe this is the apostasy he's talking about. The day of the Lord is not here until Israel signs her peace treaty. The second event by which you unmistakably can conclude you're in the middle of the day of the Lord is that the man of lawlessness is revealed. That is, he breaks his covenant with the nation. He sets, he poses God, he sets himself up in the temple as God. What do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? Is this just interesting for us? I mean, after all, those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are going to experience what? The rapture of the church, which occurs before the day of the Lord. We're gone. So is this just merely curiosity? Is that, is that all we get out of this? I've been really wrestling with this in my own mind. I mean, what's the point of teaching anything about prophecy beyond the rapture? Why not just end there? Say, hey, you know what? We're raptured. We're out of here. Whatever happens here, who cares? All Scripture is inspired of God and profitable, right? So there's something here for us beyond mere idle curiosity. Let me suggest some things. First, we should repent. We should repent from the complacency and the hardness of heart towards the Jewish nation. It's that flat simple. We care little about Jewish salvation. We are growing in our understanding, and I praise God for that. But for many of us, it's completely off the radar screen. They had their chance, and they missed it. Let's go somewhere else. Steve and Cindy, I won't use their last names. Steve and Cindy, they were with us just last month, right? Did you know that it took them six years to raise sufficient financial support to go forth? Six years 
of praying and preaching and visiting churches all over this nation before they could accumulate enough financial support to be able to go to the Jewish people with the good news of the gospel. Fifty-five churches are part of their support team. They visited some churches in other parts of this country where at their own expense they flew all the way across the country, visited this church, spoke in the church, and when they finished, the church said, we'll commit to you for 50 bucks a month. $600 a year. Beloved, it would take them three years to get their money back for that visit. There is a hardness of heart. There is a hardness of heart among the evangelical church towards the nation of Israel. We just don't care. And if that characterizes you or me, we need to repent of it. Be reminded of the Apostle Paul. I am telling the truth in Christ, he says, I am not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Brethren, it is my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for their salvation. Is that our attitude? Is that my attitude? Do I really care? It's God's attitude. It's God's priority. We need to repent of the complacency, the hardness of heart that has accumulated around us. Whether it be we don't think they can be saved or whether we say we think they already are saved. They are not. There is salvation in no one else but who? Jesus Christ alone. We need to repent of the complacency and the hardness of heart. Beyond that, we need to meditate. We need to meditate on the certainty of divine judgment. When you read about the day of the Lord, when you think about the day of the Lord, you need to be reminded of this reality. God is absolutely serious about sin. He delays his judgment often. But we must not conclude because he has delayed his judgment that it's not coming. We are storing up wrath, as it were. We must take sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. We must take inventory of our own lives versus the Word of God. And we must not mock Him by calling Him Lord, Lord, and do not what He says. 